Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Today's reading is from Genesis 27, 1 through 13. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man, while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him, and he would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Mark. I'm the pastor here at the Vine, and... uh, Thank you so much, buddy. Can we give it up for Buddy Don? No. Thank you so much. Uh, sadly, we are finishing up our series called Overlooked. In this series, we have had uh, dialogues around the, the testimony, the stories from women in the Old Testament, and just been really honest about how we have often overlooked the many different things that we can learn from them. And so sadly, we are in our final week here We have discussed the testimony of people like Hagar, the daughters of Zelophehad, Naomi, and last week we talked about Miriam. This is all what we've done in these weeks. We've also discovered through a carefully executed experiment that we don't always overlook only people in Scripture, but also in the hallways of the text fed. Uh, I had a picture of myself up for three, now four weeks, and many people have overlooked them, and some people... uh, failed the experiment even more so by even having their picture taken in front of my picture there on the wall of presidents. I promise it was a lot funnier last week. Um, So here we are in the final week, and as we were planning out this series, we really wanted to be intentional about elevating the voices of, of women in this series, but as we have explored the Old Testament, it also made sense to also elevate the stories from the Jewish community. Um, as we are exploring our sacred text together. And oftentimes for me, um, for the Judeo-Christian community, we oftentimes minimize our Jewish roots and the legacy that we have from the Jewish community. We sadly overlook that as well. And so for me, it seems to be wise for us to honor that legacy because our beliefs didn't originate with Jesus. Jesus was from the Jewish community. So for us to understand his teachings, his life and examples, that means we need to go deeper, deeper into um, truly what we believe in our sacred texts as well as understanding the the teachings and the traditions 
from the Jewish tradition. And so uh, for me, I'm really, really grateful for a friend in Sandy Crest. Uh, Sandy Crest is a, a friend of mine, a friend of ours, and a Jewish scholar. I met him uh, many years ago. He's a lawyer by trade, but he spent most of his career around education reform, first in Dallas, then in Texas, and then in the White House. He spent his, his time and his legacy in that way, but then later on in life, he's turned his attention towards the sacred text and how we can be formed by, um, by the Torah and about the teachings that we have in the Bible. Though uh, he's within the Jewish community, he spent also his time graciously in Christian communities teaching as well as at the University of Texas, right around the corner. I met Sandy over a decade ago, believe it or not, a decade ago. At a previous church, part of my job was around Christian education, and I heard that a class invited this Jewish scholar to come and teach, and I found it, through my upbringing and my training, suspect. <laughs> Who? Who, who is this person? What are they doing here? And so I found myself in the back row of the Sunday school class, probably with my arms crossed and ready for, like, the, you know, the heresy police to come in. And I quickly realized two different things. One, I have a lot to learn from people like Sandy, and I, I need to be humble in that. And two, the, the second thing I realized, just innately in a gut way, is I had just met a friend. And so for over a decade, Sandy and I have gathered occasionally to talk about Scripture, what we learn from one another. And uh, for me, I think we are meant for significant friendship. And that, that exists outside of our Christian bubbles, but in this world, and especially for people like Sandy. So would you please help me in welcoming Sandy? Come on up here, Sandy. Hi, Sandy. Good to see you, friends. Good to see you. Um, what Sandy and I love to do together is we love to uh, sit over coffee, and talk about Scripture, especially complicated Scripture, things that aren't easy. Uh, and in this series, I emailed you and I said, okay, we're doing a series of women in the Old Testament. Who would you like to discuss? And you said, my favorite is Rebecca. I want you to share why is Rebecca your favorite? Well, you know, I, I must confess that I find that exercise, or I've always found that exercise, to be a little bit uh, suspect. I may, maybe I'm an old-fashioned, old fogey, you know, uh, male chauvinist pig. I don't know. Yeah. Chances uh, are. Chances <laughs> are. It may be true. Uh, but, you know, I thought about it a lot, and then all of a sudden, in coming up with this answer, I became ferocious about her, that a paternalistic, male-dominated sort of society would have a role for a woman like this tells me that it understands, as we should understand, the power that a woman can play in history. So I completely changed my perspective about this topic and about her because, and, and we're going to talk about it for our moments together today. I think we're going to answer that question together, Mark. Mm -hmm. But uh, I want to say one thing. Think about the context when she shows up on the scene. Uh, God has, or at least uh, some distant form of God, has asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Uh, a more intimate form of God stays the hand. And yet, trauma has been experienced in the family. Mm -hmm. 
Abraham goes one way, Sarah goes another. I, I, we don't pay attention much to this in the story. Uh, and Sarah dies. Abraham has gone off into a place. Isaac, think about what it, this meant for him, right. goes off into a place. So God will have an answer for the people, but it is not clear to the reader uh, how that answer is going to come forward. Mm -hmm. So we don't have any clue. And, and uh, uh, Abraham has a sense that he needs to find a wife for his son, and he sends off a servant to find uh, some sort of wife for Isaac. And then we get introduced to Rebecca, yeah. who comes on the scene at a time when it's absolutely unclear how this tradition is gonna be passed down. Right. She is the one, yeah. not any male, she is the one who directs traffic for God. <laughs> That's a great phrase. So big picture, we yeah, have... Tell us a little bit. Mark. Yeah, yeah, big picture. Abraham, Sarah, they receive this promise that they will parent a nation. Abraham is brought out by God, shown the stars. This is a number of your descendants. Uh, they, uh, Sarah uh, gives Hagar to uh, Abraham. We, we studied that was our first week. Uh, later on in life, they have a son, finally, Isaac. And you mentioned in this moment uh, when that moment where he's about to sacrifice his son, a wedge happens within that family. And, you know, we know family systems now, we're a little bit more attentive to that, and that wedge really doesn't get reunited in that story. And in many ways, we have Isaac, who's really, really close to his mother, and she dies. And that's where, in many ways, this story picks up, is in his mourning. And so, we find, uh, we find them in that, in that place. So what's interesting is their first meeting. First meetings are important. This is actually my wife and I's 22nd anniversary of meeting each other. I'm not sure how you and Camille met. Is it a racy story? Can you share it? It's, it's a wonderful story, but we'll have to do that next week. <laughs> Sounds racy to me. Sounds racy to Speaking me. Speaking of women in the Bible. <laughs> uh, so Jen and I met actually at a Super Bowl party. At the halftime show, there we, go. we were in the kitchen. This was the <laughs> band playing. The best halftime show ever, Aerosmith, Seek, Britney Spears, and Nelly. Uh, that's how we met. I just think first meetings are really important. And what we have here, you love this passage of when uh, Isaac and Rebecca meet. And I read it. I remember you saying how much you loved it. And I read it, and it was kind of like, uh, it was kind of lost on me. And this, for me, is an opportunity to, for us to experience how differently we can read the sacred text. Why is their meeting that we find in Genesis 24 so beautiful to you? Well, I want to take 30 seconds to say, before that meeting okay. takes place, this uh, aid, this servant to Abraham comes along and sees in Rebekah. I, I should have mentioned that a moment ago. What does he see in her? He sees loving kindness. So this is the first image we have of her. She is there. She's lovely. She's beautiful. She's the right person physically. But more important than that, she's there to feed water mm. to not only him and his servants, but to all of the animals. And they are thirsty animals. So she is a loving, kind person. And it is lo this loving, kind person who then is sent out to, to meet Isaac. Now, Isaac, again, remember, is grieving his mother three years after her death. Yeah. And he looks up. He's out to say his evening prayers. He looks up 
and he sees her. And in a moment, it's as if he sees everything. He understands, you talk about love at first sight. This is the most beautiful story in the Bible, I think, of love at first sight. And all we know, the Bible is pretty short about it, is that he loves her. And, um, and they are married in the way in which the ancients got married. Mm -hmm. And it's a love story forever. Yeah. One of the things that you were mentioning to me in the context of the story is that uh, Isaac is also in the process of doing something. Something that I have shared with our community, you've taught me along the way, is anytime you notice that the Bible speaks of wells, pay attention because something significant is happening. This chapter, the context in which they meet each other, he's in the work of doing something with wells. What is he doing? Well, he is restoring his father's wells. Think about that. Think about what that means. Uh, he had this traumatic experience with his father. And yet, it's not, uh, Isaac never leaves the land. Uh, he's, not his, uh, he's not the big, uh, significant leader that Abraham was. Nor is he the one who does all of the, uh, and we won't get to Jacob in his later life, but he's a, uh, a, a quiet leader. He's an intimate leader. And it shows in this work that you're talking about. He restores the ancient wells. Mm. He, he, uh, the, it's as if the wells were plugged up. Mm -hmm. And the work of going back to tradition, going back to what was grand in his father's tradition, he sees it as his life's work to restore it. Now, what is the water? Uh, the water is probably our spirit, our spiritual n nourishment, our, our spiritual sustenance. What I felt you all singing earlier today that draws upon your spiritual strength. He wanted to preserve that. So he, and he finds a way to do it with his neighbors that, are, that bring them to peace. Mm -hmm. In fact, when I was teaching that class at, uh, at uh, Westlake Hills Presbyterian, that class began to be known as the third well class mm. because it is the third well, the first well uh, that uh, Isaac digs draws ire and consternation and war. The second as well. He finds a way to dig the third in such a way that it draws people together spiritually, but it's done in peace. Hmm. And so he finds a way to do all of that. That is his life's work when he meets his life's partner. Yeah, that's beautiful. So they are together. They, they build, have, a, family they build and now, a family. Now something significant happens. Yeah, so in the pregnancy, something Odd happens. Talk us, talk uh, us about it. It's a bit of a foreshadowing, it seems like. So yeah. this is Genesis 25, 21 through 23. This is what the text says. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Uh, there's a couple of things I think are really, really telling about this. One is the fact that Rebecca's actually listening to her body. Like, she's very aware of what's happening in her, and I think a lot of us are bringing our body into our spirituality. They're, we're bringing our bodies into our relationship with not only ourselves, but also with God. We see, I think, a picture of 
faith. Not only is she noticing what's happening, but what we find here is that she's inquiring of God. Mm-hmm. So she is this faithful person, not just going, what is going on within me, but actually humbly coming to God saying, God, I need some wisdom of what is happening. And what we find is something very, very surprising, that she's having twins, and they will be separated from each other. And the surprise for their custom and their culture is that the younger will serve, or the, the older will serve the younger, which was, uh, that was not normal. And so these sons will be born. One of them is Harry, and therefore his name will be called Esau, which means Harry, right? <clears throat> and the other is, uh, is born, and his name is going to be Jacob. And as he's born, he's reaching out and grabbing the heel of his older, just barely older brother. And that name Jacob means deceiver. You talk about just the power of names. We have Harry and deceiver, you know? (laughs) This is an odd story, but what we find is that it's really telling for how the rest of the story plays out. Um, And these two brothers will be very different from each other, right? Exactly. And think about it. We have this perfect. Uh, th- th- we have this perfect woman. She's beautiful. She's kind. Uh, she meets the love of her life. Think about it in your own lives. Uh, those times when you were set up, it was all set up to be good and right, and all of that. You're, you're prayerful. You go to God for answers, and God says to you something that's going to make your life different and changed and difficult difficult really difficult. and imposes a, and says to you you are going to have to deal with a challenge that is very complicated and very painful right. i'm telling you how it's going to go but you're going to have the challenge of your life so it's not like this the sorority girl meets the football player and life is wonderful thereafter uh-huh. It now becomes, uh, and I know we want to talk about it a little bit, Mark, it now becomes something very difficult for this God-seeker who is told something very difficult is about to happen. Right. So typically Esau would be the firstborn, the, the primary receiver of the blessing uh, from the Father, and the primary receiver of uh, the gifts and the authority of what it means to be a firstborn. But we see a, a problem with Esau's character. In particular, you talked about two different moments that you really have insight to Esau and who he is. What are those two moments? Well, we'll talk about one, and I want you to walk us through what happens when uh, uh, Esau is, is so hungry that he wants uh, to eat uh, so badly that the, uh, that the beans are so uh, uh, raw, they're not even cooked yet. And he wants to have them, and he's willing to trade away his birthright for them with Jacob. Uh, and that is a real reflection. Think about it. He's basically saying, I care so little about my birthright, whatever that means, that I'm willing to trade it away today just for some food, and some food that, does, that I don't even allow to cook fully. Uh-huh. Uh, and that says a little bit about priorities, doesn't it? It says a little bit about values. And uh, we ought to think about that. He's sort of revealing that, uh, that if he were to have the birthright, that he would value it so little mm-hmm. that he would trade it away 
just for uh, some poorly cooked food. Yeah. But at the same time, he's making decisions about who to, who to marry, both before the story starts and then after the story. We see how important it is to his parents that they marry God-fearing people. Uh, and he basically says, it doesn't matter to me. Matter. So these are character revealers for Esau that we get in the text. And it shows us for the pain, that re the difficult challenge that Rebecca has of understanding why God wanted the younger to be the one who carries forward. She now is put in the position of being the person who has to make those decisions. That blessing is significant because it will be through that person that the future of this people, the covenant that God promised Abraham that would go on generation to generation, She's now, this is why I love her, she's now in the position of being the one to decide, yeah. not a man. Yeah. Uh, she is going to be there for God to make that decision, and these blessings are the manner in which it happens. So let's go there. This is in Genesis 27. Uh, this is a complicated and layered passage, but you and I, those are our favorites, yes, right? Because, uh, and I could be wrong about this, but one, one thing that someone told me along the way is that one primary difference between the Jewish education system around the text and the Christian is in the, in the church, we will get to a complicated passage and we will tell people what to believe. And within the Jewish community, whether the tradition of Midrash or other things, we'll, have, we'll actually talk about the questions that we should be asking, not about the answers that we should be practicing, but here are all the different questions that we should be asking. And this story has a lot of questions. And so, like a, a big picture of it, okay, so we have Isaac, who's old in age, and he's having a hard time seeing. He feels like his days are numbered, and so he calls his favorite, I could be, you could say I'm wrong in this, but I think he's their favorite uh, child, Esau, to come in, and he's hungry. So we have this consistent theme of men making bad decisions around food. <laughs> so he's hungry, he asks his son, who's more of the sportsman to go out, kill wild game, bring it to me. When you get back, I'm going to give you my blessing. And we find Rebecca is in, is in distance, but she can hear it all. So she devises this plan when Esau runs off, and she calls her, her preference of a child uh, to come cl close, and she tells Jacob, I'm going to go and cook some food. You get dressed like your brother, put on goat skin on your on your arms and your hands, put on his clothes, and we will figure out how to ensure that this blessing does not go to Esau. I'm sorry, is it hot, is it hot in here to you guys? Jeez, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, um, so he, he seeks to, it's, I'm like the Gallagher of pastors. I have to use stupid props. Okay, so we. Uh, let me see, let me see. Oh, okay. what do you think? I got it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. All right. Oh, the links I go to for a stupid <laughs> joke. All right. So, uh, after convincing uh, Isaac that indeed Jacob was Esau, Isaac gives this blessing, and this is what we find the blessing to be. So he went to him. Isaac went to to Jacob. And, uh, and kissed him. And, I'm sorry, Isaac then caught the smell of his clothes and blessed 
Jacob, thinking he was Esau, and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. So right there we find in this blessing a hierarchy of sorts. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who you curse be cursed and those who you bless be blessed. What is the deal with this blessing? Because in many ways what we'll find is Esau comes back and is like, all right, here's the meal and the father is now putting it together. I've already given the blessing away. And this great conflict erupts because once a blessing is given, it's given. What is the deal with that? Well, let's understand what this blessing is. This blessing is essentially a statement to a son that God's covenant will pass through you. That as Abraham gave this to Isaac, me, I will give it to you. So you bear the burden of carrying forward the tradition of the one God. This is huge. People will look to you. Uh, to what you say and how you teach and the children you raise as to what this belief in the one God will be all about. And we see this. Those who bless you will be blessed. We see that elsewhere in Scripture so that those who bless the people of Israel will be blessed themselves. And this is something that we see taught uh, in churches and in synagogues and everywhere else. That's the nature of this blessing. Now, did let me just take one 30-second detour. Did Isaac know what he was doing or not? It's a tough question. Uh, he, uh, he asks, how did you get the food so fast before this moment? Mm -hmm. And the son says, the Lord blessed me with it. That is not an answer that Esau would have given. Yeah. That's an answer that he knew, and he keeps asking him questions. Right. So there's an argument that can be made that... Uh, that Isaac knew what was going on throughout this period, and he certainly realizes, Pastor, this is the answer I want to give you, he certainly realizes once this blessing's been given, not only is it out and given, but it is he realizes the blessing that God wanted him to make. Yeah. And finally, let me say, realizes that his wife had been directing traffic hmm. the way God wanted all mm -hmm. along. Yeah. And, and these, this can feel ancient and distant, but I do think uh, it'd be wise for us to consider there's power in blessing. Still for us. There's power in words. There's, powers that, there's power in the words that we can say either curse or to bless. And we know that sometimes when a word is said, it's, you just can't get it back. Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing can be done with blessings. We find that there's power here. And when we look at the scene, we can focus on Jacob's deception. We can look at Isaac's gullibility or the anger of Esau. But there is someone behind the scenes who is beautifully orchestrating all of this, and it's Rebecca. She seems to be the only one in the story that's clear-eyed, that's actually like using her God-given agency and in this beautiful and profound way. And so for you, what's going on inside Rebecca is that she is, in your phrase, directing traffic on behalf of God. Is that what you're saying? Is she, that she sees what's wise and good, and she's going to ensure that it happens? Yeah, absolutely. And I would just ask all of us, all of you, to think about the times in which doing the right thing was not easy. 
You know what God wants in your life, and it's not an easy thing to do. That was her story. She knew she did not know exactly how it would play out. She could have thought, hey, God will take care of this on his own, mm -hmm. and I don't really have to do anything, just sit and wait. And she probably did wait for a while. And now she comes up to this moment and says, if I don't act, I don't see how it'll happen. Right. My duty is to God to act. And she makes the decision to move forward as painful as it is. This is not an easy decision. Right. Does God give us a lot of easy decisions? <laughs> I don't think so, or at least not as many as we would like. Uh -huh. So she's sitting there thinking, I could be popular, I could do the easy thing, or I could do what God told me God wanted me to do. Right. And she makes the decision and lives with it. No one ever throws a party in her honor at, at the end of the story. She'll go off and die sort of quietly. So if you're looking for someone to hold a parade for you or to name you or to name a building for you or to honor you, if that's what motivates you, then this is not your person. But if you want to do what's tough and do what's right and what God has called upon you to do, and it's not easy, you're, you're, you know Jacob's problems, you're clear-eyed, and she later decides, and I know I want you to wrap all this up for us, Mark, but she has to send this child out for further adulting mm -hmm. because he has to grow from that deceptiveness. Right. And he will grow by meeting a greater deceiver than himself, right. Levon, right. which makes this story so wonderful. But she knows it's not a perfect, easy decision, and yet she does what God calls for her to do. And the tradition that goes from God to Abraham through these people, to Jesus, to us, it, that continuum is made possible, God decides, through her. Yeah. yeah, the main question I think that we could be provoked in this story is what she has done. Is it deception or, or is it wisdom? Because there's a couple different retellings, ways we could see this story. One is that Jacob lived up to his name, being a deceiver, and this is what happens when parents play favorites. <laughs> The other telling of this story is that Isaac knew what was happening, and he kind of passively allowed it to happen, like you were mentioning. He enacts it. Another reading is that Esau displayed a lack of character, and Rebekah was not going to stand by and allow the legacy that was happening through God's people to end with him. And it's clear that not only could she see clearly, but she was not just some domineering mother on the behind the scenes, but she even said to her son at one point, if there's a curse, it's gonna, let it fall on me. Like she is compassionate, she is involved, she's willing to get in the mess. And the reason why I love stories like this more and more is as ancient and as distant as this might seem, this is just real life, I think, for a lot of us. And what, how this is real life is not about giving of blessings and goats stew with hairy arms. What's real life is what do we do when we know the way forward and we can see how things are going off track? What is our role to play? And I'm sure that you've had to figure that out in your own life. It, I mean, she knew what was right. She even heard from God when she was pregnant that the younger will lead the older, the older will serve the younger. And here in this moment, when her husband's about to give the incorrect blessing, if I could just call a timeout there, 
you've probably been in that moment where you see that something bad is about to happen. And what is my role? Is it to wait? Is it to pray and stand on the sidelines? Or is it to try to make something happen? And it brings about a ton of ethical questions. Is this deception righteous? Is it a holy deception? Um, And I'm sure that you have been in the middle of those gray conversations where you're trying to think, like, what is my role in here? Do I need to step in here and do whatever I can to make this thing happen? Or should I just call it faith and stand on the sidelines and pray and hope and wish? I think this story in Rebecca's example lifts up a lot of those questions for us. Does the end justify the means? That's a hard one. It is. uh, And there are times when the end does not justify the means. This is how difficult and complex this story is. And I know she must have understood that. In this case, she had a choice to make for the future of her people. Would it, as you suggested, would would the decision be made to pass it through a person who does not believe in God? who will not stand for God, who will not build a God-fearing family. That's how severe the end, the choice was. Or do I make a decision that is problematic, that has its limitations and difficulties, and do I continue to work on it with him to, con- to make progress with him where we get him to a better place? Think about the decisions in your own life. How many of them are easy? How many of them involve the lesser of two bad things uh, where you have to make the better of the two choices? She does it. God, of course, it helps in this story to know that God had already looked at the strengths and weaknesses of the choices and had already decided. And she decides to put her flag down in in God's land. And we are grateful to her. We, she, as I said, no, one's gonna, no one throws a party for her. No one honors her. I'm hoping in our own little way we're honoring her yeah. today. Yeah. Would you all please thank Sandy? Thank I want to honor you. Thank you so much, Sandy. Though this story does seem so ancient and distant, I hope that you find a little bit of how... It does speak to us in our, in our life. And as we are going through, and we've gone through this series, we have seen how we can learn so much through these different women. But we see in this week that Rebecca was a woman of great strength and influence. And for me, she had clarity, this faith-filled clarity on what was right. But it didn't come easy. It's so clear in this story. It didn't come easy. But she led in that kind of way. And it's clear if you read the rest of the story of Jacob, her son, who received this this blessing, that he lived under the influence of his mother. In just a few chapters, what we will find that will happen is that some of the decisions that were made on that day leads to this contentious relationship that Jacob has with his brother. And in the scene that's filled with the sacred mystery, we find that Jacob is beginning to grapple with that reality. And the way in which he's grappling with that reality is, on this one night, he begins to wrestle with God, like physically wrestle with God. It's a beautiful 
and mysterious story. But what I loved about this story is that it's in the wrestling that Jacob is transformed. He's made different. Even in his name, on that day, this person, Jacob, who's been called a deceiver all of his life, on this day, he receives a new name, the transforming power of God's presence in that wrestling match. He receives a new name, and his name is changed to one who's wrestled with God, and that name is the name Israel. The people of God would be marked by this moment where someone had learned what it meant to wrestle with God. That's the legacy which Jesus entered, and that's the legacy that we have as Christians, as followers of this Jewish Messiah named Jesus. We are people who need to know what it means to wrestle with God. Because as much as we've been taught that life is simple, it's black and white, good and bad, like polar op, you know, options that we live in this world what we have realized over and over again is that life is complicated and few decisions are simple. But we get to live into this tradition of being people to know what it means to wrestle with God. When things are unclear, what it, what it means to wrestle with God. We don't know what is ours to manage and what is ours to release to wrestle with God. When we're not sure what the way forward is, we again and again and again wrestle with God. When I was 23, I went to seminary as someone who believed that women shouldn't teach men. Uh, this is a confession. Uh, women shouldn't teach men or preach. And when I was in the seminary, I had a Old Testament professor by the name of Ruth. And I will always remember this story because one of the things that she taught me, and I'm so grateful for uh, her grace in that moment, she taught me is that to wrestle with God seems negative. It seems like a conflict, like something bad is happening. But wrestling is intimacy. You can't wrestle from a distance. It's about grappling, touching, rolling around on the ground until you can figure out what does it mean to be faithful in this world. And she prayed for us in that seminary class that we would learn the blessing of being close and intimate with God enough that we could feel freedom to wrestle with God. And I hope and pray that for us too, that as we follow in the legacy of people like Rebecca, as we follow in the footsteps of these women that we've looked for at over these weeks, that we would see in this complicated world that we have this blessing and this opportunity to wrestle with God to figure out what does it mean to walk wisely in this complex world. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about The Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to The Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.